Our emotions are designed, they're designed to inform us, not to direct us. There is no number you're ever going to get to that is going to heal whatever is going on inside of you. I think defining what it means to be a man is not possible. And, and when I say I don't think it's possible, I think I mean on a mass scale of agreement throughout societies. Oftentimes, anger is simply sadness masked. Because I feel like you never really stop growing. And if you have stopped growing, like you're already dead in the water. You know, stagnation is synonymous to death. You are now embarking on the imperfect experience. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Imperfect Pod. Today's guest is Cameron Gordon. Cameron has helped large corporations and small businesses and entrepreneurs improve their systems, strategies, and online web presence for over 30 years. But he is most proud of his recent work in human performance therapy and his consulting and coaching uh, of clients in the realm of toxic masculinity. He speaks to and teaches businesses, teams, and individuals on the powerful rewards that happen when we understand and change our approach to masculinity in our culture, community, and personal life. We talk about his childhood trauma, some of the experiences that he had growing up in a house of uh, alcohol addicts and some abuse, uh, as well as just his overall approach and work in relationships, life, and trying to heal men of their toxic masculinity. So I really hope you enjoy. As always, leave a subscribe, leave a follow, um, and message me on The Imperfect Pod or my new email, luke at theimperfectpod.com. Again, that's luke at the imperfectpod.com reach out to me with any information or questions or ideas at any time and we'll get into the episode now all right i am with my guest cameron gordon cameron i'm very excited to have you here today uh the first question i always ask my guests is who is one person dead or alive that you'd like to have over for dinner and what would you cook for them my mother and i'd make her lemon meringue pie and she's a dead and she's gone yeah she died uh she died 17 years ago so I would love to see my mother and I'd make her the way she made me. That'd be good. Well, that's beautiful. What what would you talk about with her? Oh, wow. Now that's deep. Okay. Yeah. What would I, what would I talk (laughs) about? Well, I tell you, I'd I'd probably talk to her a little bit about uh, her life and uh, the life that she's had growing up. I was born in 1964. So I'm 55 going on uh, in October. So I'll, I'll be 56 in October. And um, when I reflect and look back now, and of course, it wasn't the case when she died, but when I look back now, these uh, 17 years later, I, uh, I, I can certainly see the complexity of the time that she was living in, her expectations of what life would be like, and subsequently, the way in which she raised my brother and my two sisters and or and, uh, and the differences between how she raised me and uh, the, shall I say, trauma that uh, has ensued over my years since then, uh, reflecting back. Not a judgment. My parents did the best they could with what they had and that the trauma that they went through in their lives. So have no judgment. But um, yeah, my my mother was um, my mother was an incredible lady in so much as uh, she was. Um, I was raised. My mother and my father were both alcoholics. So uh, codependency should be for should instead of this Nike swish, it should be codependent written right here. And um, what basically happened was 18 years before she died, she quit drinking and smoking cigarettes and everything. She just quit cold turkey. And kudos to her because, uh, you know, it probably gave her an extra decade of life. 
and uh, mm-hmm. I wish she could have lived longer to see you know the world the way it is now, as complex as hell. Is yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's beautiful. I um I I have a question. Like, are you the youngest of your siblings? I am. Yeah, I am the youngest of my siblings by seven years. So okay. my dearest, my my nearest uh, sibling to me is seven years older than I. Am. So uh, I basically, in my teens, was raised uh, as an only child because my my sisters and my brother had all graduated and moved out. You know, they were free, thank goodness. And mm-hmm. uh, while I I was dealing with the the depths of my parents' illnesses and uh, being a teenager growing up in that, it uh, it definitely added some interesting elements to my life as I moved forward, which I didn't see until uh, easily uh, 10 years ago. About 10 years ago is when I started mm-hmm. uh, allowing the cracks in my armor to separate and the real me to come out and, uh, and look at the world you know, with a fresh set of eyes. And, uh, that's really what my research and my work has been for the last 10 years. I just think that's really interesting because I'm also the youngest of four mm-hmm. and I also have two sisters and a brother. So I'm like, oh. when you said that, I was like, well, that really lines up. There's the gap between me and my brother, who's the oldest is six right. years. So, so literally we're all born within that seven, like less than seven year span. Right. Um, but when you were talking about how she, they, your mom might've raised you and your siblings differently, I think that age gap definitely plays into it. But like, what, what do you think are some of the major differences between how they raised you versus your your sisters and your brother so i i think that uh, my my oldest sister who's who's passed now unfortunately my my oldest sister um, had uh, uterine cancer and uh she lasted six years uh battling that fight and uh, she finally lost in uh, 2014 but um i would say that my oldest sister colleen and my brother ken um they lived a traditional sort of boomer uh, upbringing, um, where my parents were the traditional sort of fifties parents, capital punishment, corporal punishment was there. You know, my brother was, was hit a lot. Um, heaven forbid, I hope that that doesn't spark any memories with him. I think my brother's pretty woke, uh, pretty woke dude. So I think that, uh, he's faced that and moved on. And then, um, my sirit, my sister, then my nearest sister to me, uh, she was kind of caught in the middle between the dynamics of what happened, you know, the traditional way, and then sort of the mistakes we didn't know we were making, but we don't want to, and now that we know, we don't want to make them again, which was about when I came along. Uh, my mother, I remember her clearly telling me uh, that she, you know, I was in my teens when she was confessing all of this. She told me that uh, she basically told my dad that if he ever hit me the way he hit my brother, um, I would, uh, she would leave him. And so, you know, I didn't, I was never struck physically, but holy crap, was I struck mentally. So there was lots and lots of abuse. It just didn't come from the back of a hand and or a stick or, or twitch mm. or whatever. It was all mental. And so, you know, when you grow up in a, in a home of, of um, alcoholics, what ends up happening is you, you're kind of forced into a codependent mindset which you're walking on eggshells all the time. You're misreading cues. You're, uh, you're, picking up, you're picking up messages that you think are hidden messages in what people are saying. And it can affect you. It can affect your life for the rest of your life right until you die and once you face it. And that's just the truth of the matter. There's, 
no ifs, ands, buts about that. And just for the audience, what is, yeah, what is codependency? So codependency is actually, think of it like a disease, no different than um, being dependent. Well, here, what is alcoholism? What is uh, narcotic addiction? Um, well, that is a dependency on a drug, right? On a, uh, either alcohol or a drug in some way, shape or form. And um, uh, these sorts of people, these people that are suffering from this disease, um, they can attract into their life individuals or even um, bring about codependent behavior in people that didn't, weren't raised by alcoholic parents and like. Um, what ends up happening is the codependent, the partner, the child, the whoever, in my case, the child, um, takes on uh, a dependent attitude um, with the alcoholic or so on. So in other words, as long as, um, as, long as this happens, um, I'm going to be safe. So for example, you don't, it's walking on eggshells. Um, you don't want them to yell at you. You know, you don't want to get hit. You know, if you had a, a violent father or a violent mother, because that's possible as well, um, you know, you were raised in an environment where you're constantly ducking. If you said something inappropriate, all hell could break loose. So what do you do? You learn patterns that protect you. But the patterns may protect you really well in that situation but they don't protect you or they're certainly not useful in the real world. And uh, so what ends up happening mm. and codependent people, certain codependent people can become angry. They can help people. They get into cycles where the same people kind of, they, they, they attract uh, th this kind of person into their life continually relationship after relationship to try to fix them. And uh, the truth is you're only ever in control of Number one, you're not in control of anybody else. So learning that is uh, is key. There's a great book, by the way. I lean over to find it. There's a great book <laughs> by uh, Melody Beatty called Codependent No More. Highly recommend this book. It's a great book. And um, it is a uh, mainstay. It's uh, sold more than 5 million copies. It's been around for over 25 years. And to be honest with you, this particular book, um, is kind of like the mainstay for people who want to explore what codependency is and and uh, you know where 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 it goes from there. So to speak. so this is a great book. Anybody wants one, order it online, Amazon. <laughs> Perfect. I always like getting uh, book recommendations. Yeah, you're not plugged by them, but I always like hearing books that uh, my guests like to read because I try to keep a running list of them for future and then try to make content around those books uh, and then say, you know, these are the books that my guests like to like to read. But kind of before we go back into your story of learning all this trauma and de-learning all this trauma, uh, what do you do now? Because I'm really interested in picking apart how you went from that toxic environment to where you are now, especially with, you know, the age group that you are in, you being 55 turning 56, I think you offer a really unique perspective on why traditional masculinity is, is toxic or, you know, not even traditional masculinity, just toxic masculinity in general and, and really giving that, that frame of reference for my audience that they haven't heard before. Right. So, you know, when it comes down to what I do now, so I am the men's outreach coordinator at Arrow and Slocan Lakes Community Services in Nakusp, British Columbia, Canada. 
and um, I service uh, the the whole region. There's uh, about seven or eight communities uh, within my boundary, and um, it's thanks in large part from grants from the Columbia Basin Trust and from uh, Community Foundation Canada. And what uh, my program does is it helps men 16 years of age and up deal with uh, violence and the effects of toxic masculinity on not only themselves and their family, but overall on the entire community. I also create um, information uh, videos as well as podcasts that I send out through social media that helps both men and women to understand what toxic masculinity is. Because um, one of the things that you and I have spoken about this, one of the things that I know for sure is that men aren't the only ones that are steeping, if it were tea, for example, steeping in the toxic masculinity soup that is out there in the world. Um, We're all exposed to it, man, woman, child. And uh, the sooner we get a handle on it, the sooner we get a, a hold on the cause, it's going to lower and lessen the effects. And the effects are violence, war, racism, uh, anger, um, done in such a way that it shows up as civil war, war, uh, community against community. And um, I'd like to see that lessened and turn into a more healthy dynamic. So it's really about healing the communal wound that all of us have, as Terry Real calls it. Terry Real is a uh, another author that I would recommend. Um, he's um, written a book, uh, by the way. Give me two seconds. I'm just going to go grab it. <laughs> uh, this is a book. This is a book that um, that I've actually um, suggested to my male clients that um, are struggling in their relationship with. Um, the results of their anger being inappropriately expressed uh, through violence, domestic violence, as well as just, you know, the relationship is starting to break down. A lot of us, when we were children growing up, or students or young men, young women, we had no clue. No one taught us. There's no class about marriage. How does a relationship work? So Terry Real created a really cool book called The New Rules of Marriage. And uh, I highly recommend this book as well, because it's a workbook that um, uh, spouses, partners can do together uh, to improve their relationship. And um, mixed in conjunction with good, honest conversation and talk, um, relationships can be cured, uh, help um, cured. <laughs> uh, the yeah. complexity is up and can be cured. Yeah. If we're, if we're going on a book recommendation spree Ooh. here, I got one for you, Cameron. I got, it's oh, called For oh. the Love of Men. Oh, cool. By uh, by Liz Plank. Um, it's a fantastic, fantastic book um, from a female's perspective about the yeah. problems of toxic masculinity, Perfect. which, I mean, I've read this thing. I've broken it down. I make, I made notes in it all the time. It talks a lot about anger, shame. It talks about LGBTQ, racism, risk in men, white, like, you know, a lot of the internet intersectionality of yeah. a lot of things that are masculinity and, and masculine. So for me, it was a, a, a fantastic book and, and talks a little bit about men's rights. It kind of builds off of Michael Kimmel quite a bit. If, if you're familiar with his work, yeah. Yeah. um, 
I think she was a, she was a mentee of, of his. Um, and so it, it's a fantastic book. I love it. She works at Vox now or worked at Vox, uh, pretty, pretty progressive, uh, journalistic publication in, in the States, but she's also Canadian actually. Oh, um, I think she's from Montreal yeah. or Quebec. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, I, I, um, that's a that book because I, 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 I eat this stuff up. I, I absorb it and I hadn't yeah. heard of that book. So thank you for that recommendation. I will. Read yeah. It. I, I saw it in like the stories three months ago or no way back in October of last year. So October, 2019, and it was like $40 book. I couldn't really justify buying it at that point, yeah. but I bought it recently cause it's been on my list forever. And I'm like, I should have bought this book before. Cause it, it will guide the conversations I have on this podcast for a while. And that's what I'm trying to do is yeah. learn a bit more so I can expand my, my own conversations. But going back to what you said about um, the, the core fundamental problem that is toxic masculinity or the root cause. What do you, what do you believe is the root cause of toxic masculinity? Well, that's actually, uh, the root cause of toxic masculinity. Let me, let me reverse that. Let me, let me switch the dynamic about that. So I used to say, think outside the box and, um, I've switched that to think like there is no box. Um, toxic masculinity is the problem. Um, toxic masculinity has been around for thousands of years, um, brought about by wars, famines, and men um, taking over the, uh, the system. It's, again, not against men. It's just the way that it happened. And let's face it, in times of war, uh, people needed to get the blinders on and be focused because their families were going to be harmed, killed. And so... Uh, the human race, let's, let's look at it from a huge 30,000-foot level and let's look down. The human race needed to adapt to the complexity of uh, civilization. We needed leaders. We needed rules. We needed ways in which we can move things forward. And um, the opium of the people, so to speak, is religion. Uh, there's, there's that aspect as well. And so that married up with the leaders. We control the people through religion. And they had belief systems at that time, like the pantheon and gods and so on and so forth. And um, men were the protectors. Women were the uh, homekeepers. And that's just history. That's just facts, the way that it, that it happened. But uh, somewhere along mm -hmm. the line, and I think we're all in agreement here, somewhere along the line, the equality, the, uh, the, the, the united front of the human race, both male and female, raising their children together, kind of broke off, and men began to exert their power and supremacy over the over the masses. Not just not just men and women, not just women. I mean, but children and so on. And result is that uh, an awful lot of poor decisions were made uh, that affected or created a ton of trauma in the the children who perpetuated into the next generation and it either got worse or a little bit better, but it's still kind of, if you're looking at the teeter-totter of time, uh, it was decidedly tipped towards toxic decision-making. And so as a result, throughout the centuries, uh, it's developed into what we think are things like that are normal, such as, you know, uh, men shouldn't cry. Men shouldn't show emotion, period, uh, except for anger. Uh, men can show anger because that's 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 manly, uh, but don't you dare cry. Don't you dare show anything other than, you know, violence or anger. The miss, uh, uh, the the inappropriate 
uh, ways in which men showed anger, therefore, started popping out. Uh, subsequently, um, men ruling the world, um, it created a, a mindset, and that mindset was adopted by um, everyone, not only the men, but the women in our lives. And subsequently, therefore, women would say things like, uh, well, you got to man up, you know, you got to grow a pair. And what she, what, what she was saying when she said, you got to man up, you got to grow a pair is, you know, stop crying. You know, you got to get out there and you got to, you got to work hard, suppress those feelings. And uh, if you didn't, both men and women would emasculate you. So what in, ends up happening is that individuals who didn't want to toe the toxic masculine line were basically put under thumb and uh, emasculated, made to feel less than. Any human being who's lived more than 40 years knows what it's like to live with those special little tidbits of trauma that uh, affect us in our decision-making as we move forward in life. And that moving forward in life is what's paramount now. Because right now, for the first time in the history of mankind, we are starting to see the effects not only of toxic masculinity, but what the world could be like if we didn't have it. We're starting to see equality between the sexes. We're starting to see equality between the races. We're starting to see or opening up the discussion for these things um, and seeing the effects. The problem is, here's where I'm coming from in a lot of what I talk about. The problem is, is that in the proclamation and the, the, the pumping up of our differences, we're using the same techniques and treatments that we were given by the toxic masculine world. And so like uh, the famous quote from, um, uh, my God, I forgot her name. Thank God you sneezed. Gives me a time to think of her name. <laughs> uh, Mother Teresa. So just as Mother, just as Mother Teresa said, um, what ends up happening is if we attack a thing with the same energy that created it, we're only perpetuating the thing. So if we attack toxic masculinity using toxic masculine techniques, what ends up happening is we perpetuate toxic masculinity. And if you come at it from a different perspective, um, and that perspective is kindness, that perspective is love. You, you come at it with acceptance and understanding, all of a sudden the world changes. William Blake said that the eye altering alters all. If you change the way you look at something, everything else is going to change. Yeah. I, I love that because um, I, I've had this conversation before and I try to tell my female friends that say, you know, kill all men, all men are trash. I'm like, that is not a useful way of coming at the argument because it's just perpetuating that same dangerous ideology of, you know, this is a very extreme way of looking at it. And for me, I have conversations with people that might fit the traditional sense of kind of toxic masculinity because I just want to understand what they're saying. I want to understand what they're coming from because it's the same reason why I listen to, you know, maybe some more conservative thought leaders is because I want to understand what they're saying to their followers so I can combat it. I want to understand what they're, they're agreeing with so I can disagree with it in a way that is 
focused on solving the problem or coming at it with empathy and understanding rather than with brashness and, and anger. Because as you said, that just perpetuates the same toxic behavior, which I really liked. And you've kind of able to summarize it there with Mother Teresa's quote, um, which which I really loved. Well, and, Mother Teresa, yeah, go ahead. Mother Teresa, oh, sorry, Mother Teresa's, I don't know if that's a direct quote from Mother Teresa, but um, Mother Teresa was quoted as saying, you know, if you invite me to an anti-war rally, I'm not going to attend. But if you invite me to a peace rally, I'll be there. And the reason why is because anything that is anti something is perpetuating the thing that you are fighting against. There's a new or a different idea out there. And that's the only thing that I, you know, if I start with this, it's that I don't think there's a man alive who wants to deplete their personal internal joy of life by being a toxic ass. I don't think there's anybody out there that wants to hurt people intentionally. Let me change that a little bit in so much as there are three types of people. There are definitely those individuals that have no empathy, um, that are on a, uh, uh, a social, um, psychological journey that the rest of us aren't on, psychopaths, sociopaths, etc. You're not going to be able to fix those people. Definitely. I don't think you can. Then there's the other two groups, which are the people that are wanting and wishing to be awakened, who want to see it, want the world to be a different place. And then there's the people that um, are just ignorant. And I, I mean that the word ignorant isn't a bad word. I, I want to choose that word carefully. They simply don't know. If we can educate the people who know and help them move up, you know, to, the, to level up, and we can help individuals that are ignorant to understand how it would benefit them to move up, then we've got two thirds or even more, I'd say 80, 90% of the planet figured out. And then everybody can sort of deal with the people that can't be fixed, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Because for me, it's, it's, not, it's not like 50% of guys want to be toxic. It, it's very much, 80% to 90% don't want to be toxic, but the loudest majority or the lot, like the minority is the loudest portion, or it's the one that gets amplified a lot in the social media age. So it's those guys that, you know, I think toxic masculinity, every guy is a little bit toxic. Any guy who says they're not a little bit toxic is confused, Fine. not self-aware enough, not enough, right? Like for me, I know that I have some toxic traits and I try to diminish those or get rid of them and understand what they could be through learning, through feedback from women and through feedback with other men because it's not just women that can identify toxic traits in men. Um, and I don't think every trait that women think is toxic is toxic. I, I think that just because I, how I can't say every trait of womanhood is toxic like they don't think that's toxic, but I don't think it's up to me to to kind of define that if that makes any sense. Oh but, yeah, like like you gotta understand like like um, masculinity and femininity are natural. There there are natural differences between the the male um, entity or the male being and the female being. There there just is, and that's you know praise to that um, because it's created this smorgasbord of people that we have on the planet in all the various and variety of genders that we've discovered and in all the incredible ways in which 
men and women can love one another and, and move forward in their lives together. However, there is a toxicity that exists. We call it masculinity because the majority of the pressure for that has been put on men. But it doesn't mean that men are toxic or that women are toxic. Even women that have toxic masculinity traits within them, that they're toxic. It just means you have to become aware of it and recognize it as it's happening. And if you don't, we all make mistakes. I am a spokesperson for errors and troubles and problems. Let's face it, we're all in it. Nobody gets out of this alive. But we do know, or we do need to know, that there are problems that exist that are fundamentally attached to the concept of toxic masculinity, that if we just recognize it for what it is, we can move forward and grow. There's nothing wrong with growth. Mm-hmm. It's a good thing. Nothing wrong with it. So now kind of turning it back onto you is, is what are some of those toxic behaviors that you learned that you have and have since come to terms with? And cause I think that's really interesting. You grew up in a, in a, a house of alcoholic parents. You've referred to it a couple of times that you have your own trauma. You referred that you are the spokesperson for, for having those problems. What are some things that you've come over and, and, and healed from or, or grown with and, and grown through? Right. So, you know, it's deeply personal stuff, but um, I think my role and what I do, um, I think I need to talk about it outside of outside of what really, you know, in my internal stuff so that men who are out there and that are listening to this and that um, do pick up on it, they know that they're not alone. Um, And I'm probably worse than some. And not bad at all in comparison to others, because let's face it, we all have our stuff. Um, But at a young age, I was sexually molested by a cousin. I was um, uh, pushed uh, towards uh, inappropriate behavior by a a teacher of trust, trusted like a, a, a teacher at the school that I went to school at. And I also was, um, because of my background, my background's in acting. I, I was an actor uh, from the age of seven up. And um, when I was 19, I was exposed to uh, an event that occurred uh, that you could classify as a Me Too movement uh, moment, casting couch concept that I was able to um, veer away from. But that it, it, it mars you, it, 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 it changes you no matter how you think you got over it. If you just suppress it, it's going to come back and start knocking on your door at some point in life. And uh, it's only been in the last 10 years that I've been able to, talk, through counseling and therapy, which, by the way, you know, individuals who don't want to talk to somebody, um, you, need, you need to look at that as a, as a type of denial. What are you hiding from? Because there's nothing, that, that, there's nothing wrong with asking for help. There's nothing wrong from getting advice. There's nothing wrong from growing and finding out a little bit more about yourself. So alcoholic parents, um, sexual abuse, other other aspects uh, of of growing up in a dysfunctional and being codependent, um, things like not being able to say no, things like not being, not wanting to hurt anybody, you know, always, always on eggshells. These are traits that 
I definitely exhibited and still to this day uh, must consciously control always. Uh, it never goes away. Uh, but what does happen is it just gets easier to understand. When something rises up, you recognize it, and you're able to just kind of bring it back down and control it. Um, and that's what it is. Know where it comes from, and you can deal with it. It's when you don't know where something's coming from, and your ego takes over, and your impulses get squashed, that the flare-up happens. And when that flare-up happens, you know, some people might say, wow, that guy's got a guy's got a short temper. He's got a short fuse. Look out for that. Well, that short fuse is actually a symptom of a much mm. deeper trauma that happened earlier. Uh, alcoholism, any form of addiction. If you drink too much, you smoke too much weed, if you just, if you're doing any drugs too much and you become dependent on them, then what ends up happening is through that dependency, all you're doing is squishing your pain down and that one time that your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, what have you, starts pushing your buttons, so to speak, pulling your triggers, instead of dealing with it maturely and with conscious understanding and uh, lessening uh, the problems and, and, and uh, uh, getting rid of violence, you'll act on the violence, you'll act on the way you were treated and you'll repeat the cycle. We all need to know to stop repeating that cycle. And um, sometimes that's easier when you speak with someone. Sometimes it's easier if you read a book. It, everyone is different. Each situation is different. But I'm telling you, it's been my experience that sitting down and talking to someone is by far the best way to um, deal with your stuff and, and look at it clearly and, and with uh, a good comprehension. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of things you said in there that are, are going to end up as quotes because there was, there was quite a lot in there that you unpacked and you said it very wisely and I couldn't keep track of all of them. But one thing I wanted to ask you was about male victimhood. And it's not a to topic that is often brought up about, you know, when we hear sexual abuse, it's often, and me too, it's typically in terms of women. Um, does so what would you say to male victims out there who, who have also suffered, who have also had those experiences? How can they know that they are able to share or able to come forward? Um, and what do you feel about that process that, that male victims are, aren't really part of the conversation all that much? Right. No, that's, and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because when you're dealing with um, an environment where uh, individuals are expressing violence, sometimes it can be it can be the the other way around. So, in other words, instead of the male being the one, it's actually the the female that is that is doing the abusing, uh, and or uh, another family member, and or you know a male uh, partner, and or uh, they're still in it as a as a teenager. And their parents are both harming them, uh, victimizing them in one way or another. And by the way, it's not just violence. Uh, there's violence, yes, domestic violence. There's also uh, financial abuse. There's um, uh, physical, sexual, and mental abuse. So these, these different types of abuse could be happening. Um, but where it stems from is the individual that is doing the abusing 
I would say nine times out of 10 is in fact, was in fact abused themselves. And they're trapped in a cycle and acting out of uh, their own trauma, their own past trauma. Now, men who are abused, let's just get right to that. So those individuals may very well fall into the realm of emasculation. Emasculation, as you know, is is basically they've had their testicles removed. Um, they've been dressed down. They're, they're made to feel less than um, in many aspects of their life. And they're dealing with a shame and a guilt, but they're also dealing with uh, the love of that individual as well. It's a twisted world. It's That's a twisted mindset. But you know, um, it's not something that uh, uh, you would wish on anyone, that, that they love the abuser, but they do. Just like women, what, you, you know, you might ask a woman, well, why didn't you leave? Well, I thought that it changed. I thought you picked. I loved him. And uh, it takes an awful lot for women to leave an abusive relationship. And what ends up occurring is... Men that are in that dynamic need, first of all, to know that they're not alone, that they are not individuals that are less than anyone else. Um, they need to look into codependent behavior to see whether or not what they're doing is perpetuating and or whether or not that's even healthy for them. And of course, I would say it's never healthy for you. Um, and they need to know that there is support. To one degree or another, in, in every community, there is support for abused people, male or female. Um, but the pride of being male and sucking it up, that's toxic, right? So what ends up happening is, is that they're only perpetuating the abuse if they suppress seeking help. It's not going to. It's not going to be fixed on its own, ever. Never going to be fixed on. It. You, it has to come from within for the individual. It has to come from within for the individual that's being victimized as well. And so it does happen. It's not as much, but it it does definitely happen. And another aspect of this same thing, and and I run across it in my work, is men who have been abused. They see toxic masculinity as an insult. How dare you say toxic masculinity? Abuse happens to both men and women. And, and they, they stand up and they, and they point at the, the term toxic masculinity as a feminist agenda, as if, as if a feminine equality would in any way, shape, or form harm their masculine nature. It's not going to do that. Feminine equality does not harm men in any way, shape, or form. The only time that it does is if you think it's going to. And then what you do is you put it, they want to be better than we are. Well, no, they don't want to be better. They want to be equal. There's, and it's okay. That is okay. Mm -hmm. It's not just okay. It's expected. Not only that, but every race should also be equal. We know that it's not. We, I know white privilege exists. Um, my, my first marriage, I've been married before. My first marriage is to a lady from Grenada. I have mixed children. I've seen their racism. I've seen the racism against my own children 
and it overwhelms me with rage and anger because they're my kids. But they're the ones who tell me things are going to change. We've, we're not going to mm -hmm. deal with this the same way it was dealt with in the past. We're going to make sure that it's listened to. We're going to make sure that it moves forward. And it's happened just in the recent, just in this last summer. And you can, or in the spring, as well as moving into the summer, you know, a clarity on what Black Lives Matter means, a clarity on, on uh, race equality and what white privilege actually is. And you're having white people for really the first time kind of go, oh, you know, I never saw that before. There's the great meme of the, of the uh, obstacle course on the bridge and the white person for looking at this obstacle course going, oh, has that always mm. been there? I've never noticed that before. It's yeah, it's always been there, you know, and the fact that we're waking up to it now means things potentially. I have to say that little caveat because I hope that it changes, but we're seeing that potentially a big change is going to take place on the planet as a result of all of this. I can only hope. Yeah. God, I, hope I answered all your questions on that one. <laughs> No, I I think you did, and and I want to follow up with one thing you said there about you know this idea that femininity is is a challenge to masculinity, and I I never understood that myself. Is um this idea that women want men to be better is crazy? Like I I why is that crazy? That should be what men want for each other too, because men will call out that kind of behavior in ourselves, but if women call it out, then we get we respond being like, how dare you say what we can and can't be angry by, or how dare you this, 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 this. And it's like, it's, it's the same way if I challenged a stranger on the street, right? You're, you're much more likely to be willing to hear something that's from a friend or a loved one. Um, which is why I think the approach that we talked about earlier of, with kindness, with empathy is a lot easier. It's, it's much easier for me to call out behavior that might be racist or sexist or something in my parents, you know, if they're from a different generation, but I never want my friends to call my parents racist or, or homophobic or something like that. Right. Like that's not what I want, but it, so I'll protect them. But I also admit that this is a flaw or a, a conversation that I have to have with my parents. To me, it's the same thing. So it's like, but it's, it's not at all. A th it's a threat because I love them and I want them to be better, but it's not wrong. And that's where I'm yeah. like, why are you getting so defensive about something that's not wrong? And it's just because it's not coming from someone that you want to hear it from. Right. It's, it's kind of like if you, it's the overgeneralization that humans do. We, we overgeneralize everything. Um, if we were, if, if we were injured as a child um, by someone of a different race or um, by a, a different sex. Uh, what ends up happening is we could move forward in life judging that entire race, judging that entire um, um, job, that entire industry by that one individual. And life, life doesn't work that way. Life's bigger than that. And the other aspect that I, that I talk to my men about, my clients, my male clients, I talk to them about this and I say, you know, just admit this because, I mean, I can admit it freely. Why can't you? We can all do better. We can all do better. All of us, man, woman, and child, really. We can all do better. That being the case, how do we do better if nobody's out there teaching us how to do stuff better? 
we know what compassion means. We know what empathy means. We know what kindness means. The difference between actually acting on it and not acting on it is that level of abuse and trauma that, that, that we've had in there somewhere. And you can see it. You know, you can see it. Those individuals that walk into Walmart, point their fingers and yell and scream at people. You know, they, they were, they, what were they? They were affectionately called, uh, given names, right? We call them things like Karen now or something like that, right? You know, when somebody's oh, yeah, yelling, yeah, yeah. You know, the anti-political the anti, uh, nature of people and so on. And, you know, judgment calls are made. Those individuals, to the degree with which that they're, they're fighting, is the degree with which they feel they need to fight in order to succeed and be heard. And that is the case in every single possible uh, suppressed group on the planet. And what I find inspiring, truly inspiring, is when calmer minds prevail or, or speak out to prevail. When someone says, don't act like you were treated you know you see that in in the black lives matter and in the protests that are occurring you see that in war there is always an opportunity to discuss and to negotiate and to work through something there's never a reason to blow the world up there's never a reason to have this dichotomy that exists between left and right the real reason why left and right exist, the real reason why we have the dichotomy, the reason why countries are at odds against one, one another is because we're not allowing ourselves to lead with empathy, understanding. And it might sound Pollyanna, but it's really not. We can have really deep, truly complex conversations with one another if we both come to the table with a sense of we want this to be better we want uh, we want to be better you want to be better let's make something let's make this work it's when you add the toxic elements that are part of toxic masculinity into the mix that things start blowing up mm -hmm. in my experience yeah and i i totally agree with that and i think any form of extremism is is bad on on both sides um but kind of going to what your generation experienced, because, you know, we said it before, you drank the Kool-Aid, um, you come from yeah. kind of, and I, I actually did an interview with my dad, it comes out, well, by the time that this is released, it will have happened already, um, oh. but it was nice because um, I, I got to hear more about what his dad taught him so so two generations up and how different that is and how you know my generation's kind of different there are those generational gaps when it comes to masculinity and having the conversation around it you said you know you've become woke um what was that process like for you let, let me let me let me rephrase that because when i heard it being said back to me i realized there's an error in that i am uh, trying to become woke uh i i don't think <laughs> Honest, I don't think anybody's woke. Um, I think it's constant. You're constantly trying to achieve it, and that, thereby, that's life. That's the adventure of life. If if I was woke, I wouldn't be here. I'd be in a mountain <laughs> cave as a guru. Um, all right. So the question was, how was it? What was it like for me in my uh, being raised yeah. like in like just I, uh, grew up in generalizations? 
yeah, the general generational gaps that that year of experiencing how you've overcome what you were raised with to the point where you are now, because a lot of men, I think, see them, you know, a lot of the guys that I see in this whole masculinity space, it's ironic because they talk about how men aren't stagnant beings, how we can improve every day, but they live these models of their life that are very much old school. And it's like those two things can't really be very cohesive together. I, the, the irony I find in a lot of the uh, typical white men masculinity movements is that they they talk out of both sides of their mouth where it's like, hey, you don't listen to anyone says about you as a man, but then they look at these new age men and they're like, these new age men aren't men. And then they also say, you know, we're going to learn every day. Like that's what your job as a man is to do every day is to learn. But they, they stay in the same past 50 year mentality of what masculinity is seeing that there's no evolution of it. Um, that's kind of my, my preamble there, but what's your, what's your experience with generational gaps? So, so what you've got is, uh, so I was raised, uh, I'll just, say it for myself i was raised in such an environment that um it led with toxic masculinity um children should be seen and not heard um you have no valid idea uh of what's good for your life until such time as uh you leave home if you're under my roof you're going to follow my rules and i'm never wrong uh the king of the household you know, basically what they're doing is they're replicating uh, a tyrannical rule at some point in their life, capital punishment. Um, I remember, I mean, here's the, here's, here's a story from my youth. And it's probably something that any parent or any one in my age range can probably equate to. It may sound bizarre to you, but it really happened to me. Six years old, I'm a little kid no bigger than my thigh. And, uh, you know, six years of my life, I've listened to my father go out in the backyard and scream at the dogs to shut up. The little yappy, you know, small little dog, uh, uh, what we call Heinz 57s, you know, the poodle bashing, you know, who knows what kind of dog it was. And uh, six years old, I'm just doing what my dad does. It's just happens to be six o'clock in the morning and he worked till two in the morning and he's asleep for four hours. And he hears his son's little high-pitched voice yelling at the dogs at six o'clock in the morning, you know, shut up. The same way he taught me from experience to do. I turn around and there's my dad in his donchy whiteies, you know, the really bad, you know, 1960s type underwear, backhands me and uh, has no idea that for the rest of my life until, you know, I I went through uh, counseling and therapy that that little boy that he backhanded and put into the corner stayed there, cramped down, the child within, the pain within me just clammed up. And from six years of age and up, things weren't always the same. Always watching out. My dad was talking to me, am I going to get hit? Like the dog wincing, that kind of stuff, right? Because I never forgot. The subconscious mind never forgets. So you might forget consciously, but the subconscious, it feeds all this stuff into your values. And your values, they form your opinions. And your opinions form your life as you move through it, good or bad. So that happened to me at six. So let's see what happens when uh, my kids are a certain age. 
and they do something inappropriate. What do I do? I yell. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hit. I'm not going to hit. Hitting's, hitting's wrong. What do I do? I end up yelling at them. And so what's that make me? That makes me a mental abuser, not a physical abuser. So now my parent, my, my children, I've perpetuated this, right? So now how I was abused, now I'm passing it on to my children. And I'm doing it because, you know, when they are yelling, what do I do? I yell. I don't hit. I yell. And my children, as a result, they don't like yelling. And, of course, they don't like hitting. So now what are they going to do? Sounds, does, this, does this sound kind of familiar to you in some way, shape, or form? Well, it, it's funny because my dad said the exact same thing of, of children are supposed to be seen and not heard when I was talking about him, about how he was raised. Yeah. Yeah. Like and the exact you know, same quote. And and now I'll tell you, about, I've got grandchildren. My daughter has two beautiful uh, children. Um, uh, I won't say their names for protection and all of that, but you know, they're, yeah. they're, six, they're six and four and uh, I don't want to squat them. They have, they have so much incredible insight. They, they, the things that they see, the innocence, but at the same time, the incredible wisdom that comes out of their mouth sometimes because they just see things clearly. And uh, it resonates right to my core. And that's kind of how I know I've kind of overcome that aspect of my, of my youth. The other one was, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't, have, we didn't have access to the information that everyone has access to today. Well, we basically had a newspaper and television. And where I grew up, which is the same area, we had three television channels. Three. And one was Canadian. The other two were American. So we've been exposed to that kind of stuff. We weren't exposed to video games, violent or otherwise. We weren't exposed to other things. We were exposed to television, the violence on television, the violence in other areas. And that, the writers didn't know that they were perpetuating toxic masculinity any more than they know today in TV commercials. But if you call a grown man a boy, that's toxic. If you call a grown black man a boy, that's not just toxic, it's racist. It, it just, it level, we all get that, right? We all understand. Listen, in the slave, in the land of slavery, uh, they called to, to, to in, in, uh, emasculate the men, they called them boys. That's disgusting. Why on earth would a grown woman call a man good boy, good boy? You see that in television all. I just saw it in an ad last night on TV. I don't get my nose out of joint because I see it. It's just an example of how toxic masculinity is subtly perpetuated throughout our our world. It's not just North Mm -hmm. America. It's in every country, every civilization in the world. Yeah. And, and I liked how you brought it up too. And I meant to bring it up earlier that you mentioned how women might say things that 
perpetuate toxic masculinity because for uh whether it was you know you, you're being a wimp or you're being a wussy or you, that wasn't the words you used earlier but it was something along those contexts yeah, and yeah. to me i've i've been told i'm too sensitive growing up like i was told by women that i was too sensitive like and i never really like i was always like what does that mean how can you be too sensitive like and i would try to bottle up my emotions a bit but to me, it, it women do have to realize that they are part of the conversation, they are part of the problem, and they are part of the solution. And that exactly. is fundamental to the conversation, right? Like, just how men are a problem. Men aren't the only people that perpetuate toxic masculinity. Women do it all the time by by calling old like their husbands or their boyfriends boys, or by being part of those conversations where they say you're being too sensitive, or they say they want you know even in perpetuating the the patriarchy, you know men have to still provide emotionally, even though they're they're not the financial provider they're still expected to be kind of like the rational person sometimes in in high emotion situations because no one wants to be with someone who gets frozen either like so whose role is it to not freeze so you can't really have it both ways where you expect the man to be emotional but also get mad at him if he freezes up in a situation where he was just as lost as you were and we're seeing that but at the same time, someone has to take the responsibility to lead. And that expectation is often laid on the man. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm just saying that that being expected to lead can't be that toxic if that is what's expected to happen. And one person has to do it. One person has to come to the table with that. It just should kind of go to the person where it's convenient that that person leads, you know, playing to your strengths. Um, but sure. I, I do think that women are part of the, the part of the problem and, and part of the solution, just like how everyone is part of the problem. Everyone's part of the solution. That's a really good point, because I think that I, it's it's in, it's imperative that that I make this point. Toxic masculinity. And I know that I've said it before, but toxic masculinity is not about masculinity. What it is, is the. It's the expectation, the unrealistic expectation of what masculine is versus what it really is. And so masculinity, um, if, a, if, a, if a woman wants the man to lead, well, that's just relationship roles. So having an honest conversation with your mate, male, female, it doesn't matter, any relationship having an understanding of the roles and responsibilities within that helps. Also understanding what your strengths are and what your weaknesses are and being able to communicate that as well. You know, when I, me personally, when I've got way too much stimulation, too many things happening at exactly the same time, like the phone rings, I get an email and my mindset, everything's important. What ends up happening is, is I just, I have a little mini meltdown. It doesn't mean that I'm crying. It doesn't mean I'm, it just means I got to stop and take a breath and figure out which comes first. For me, that's just part of my stuff. If you're in the midst of that and your spouse says, well, you're the one who's, you're the man, like man up, or you're the man, you're supposed to take the lead. Well, that's an expectation of a role that maybe perhaps was never were never talked about. So really what we're, we're mixing up here is we're mixing up how roles within a relationship and the tasks and duties that need to get done as we move through our day, every single one of us, 
that communication hasn't taken place. Why hasn't that communication taken place in the relationship? Probably because when they got together, it was just assumed based upon their gender um, beliefs, the subjective gender beliefs that the two individuals had, that this is my job and this is your job. We don't even have to talk about this. Meanwhile, later on down the road or after the honeymoon phase, some stuff starts popping up, right? We've all heard how we marry our parents. We marry, we marry our mother. We marry our father. There's another aspect. What you don't like about somebody else is what you don't like about yourself. There's an aspect within you mm -hmm. that you don't like and you project it onto others as well. That also happens and occurs. So really what we're talking about is we're talking about in, in gender relationships or in, in, um, in any relationship, understanding what the roles are. And uh, that, that defeats toxic masculinity right there. Because the minute you start communicating clearly and honestly and authentically, if you're an authentic person, guess what? Your relationship's going to be authentic and it's not going to be based in trauma. And there's two types. There's the trauma bond and then there's the authentic bond. A trauma bond, the relationship will be like a roller coaster, lots of highs and lows, whereas a, uh, an authentic bond is more stable. Sure, it's got its highs and lows as life throws things at you, but it's, it's a much more stable environment. The other thing that you kind of look at in a case like that as well is you're looking at um, attacking each other about something that's over there. You know, you're clashing, but the problem's over there. Why not just stop and both sit together and look at the problem and talk about the problem and deal with it together? That's a healthy, these are healthy communication. That's, you know, that's another, that's a really good point because, you know, women uh, have traditionally um, stayed at home and taken care of the children. Men go out and they provide. Um, but here's the thing. The women that stay home to raise the children become house, housewives. Um, uh, there's, there's better terminology for that now. Uh, for example, a um, home care worker, a... Um, uh, the executive of the house, so to speak, these individuals, mm -hmm. that's a real job. And they've actually done the fiscal numbers on it. And it's worth about 80 to $100,000 or more per year um, to stay at home and take care of the children because of the amount of work that it is. They're not staying at home eating bonbons. And, but a toxic masculine human will make those comments. Listen, what, how much money have you brought in this month? This is my house. I'm, you know, we've heard all the cliches. The truth is, is that if you're in a relationship where one is working and one is staying home, 
both roles are equally uh, important and should be spoken with respect and dealt with with respect and never undermined. Mm -hmm. That's my, that's my, I've seen it. I've seen it on both sides. I've seen, I've seen when a, um, when men disrespect it and I've seen when men do respect it and the happiness and the joy that comes out of the individuals when they're living in that kind of dynamic, as opposed to the, well, the traumatic or the, the, the seriously dysfunctional dynamic where the man thinks he's all that in a bag of chips and, and his wife is nothing because she stays home and takes care of the kids. That's just, Mm -hmm. that's horrible. Yeah. And, and kind of to, to wrap up the conversation, I wanted to bring it back to what you do with men in your community, because you mentioned to me, I I forget if it was at the beginning of the podcast when we were actually recording or not, but you do one-on-one clienting or, or, or coaching, um, in in a lot of situations, do you find, cause this is, this is kind of more of a personal question. Do you find that men are much more willing to open up and willing to change in a one-on-one conversation versus a group environment? Like what is your experience with that, with that difference? Yeah. So what I do, I'll, I'll answer those for like three questions. I'll answer them. Um, so, uh, what I do is, um, first of all, if a man hears about me, uh, they have to contact me. Um, I don't go out seeking it. However, I do outreach, uh, which means I educate the community. I not only educate, and when I say the community, anybody who wants to watch my stuff, um, and I educate them just on topics that are important to me and to them. I interview individuals very similar to what you're doing. And that draws the attention of individuals. Sometimes uh, men get referred to me by the RCMP. They get referred to me by the Ministry of uh, Family and Child Development and other groups. And uh, usually when they're referred to me, how it works is um, I get a phone call from the worker or from the RCMP officer. They tell me uh, to expect a call. I don't call. That individual, it has to come from within. If you don't want to change, it ain't, it's not going to get forced on you. The minute, the minute they call me, I set up a meeting. And um, I like to do my meetings either uh, privately in my office, but with COVID right now, um, I'm meeting a lot of individuals outside going for a, a socially distanced walk and just having a talk. What's going on in your life? What's, what's, what's brought about all of this? What, what's happened? And we have a really good conversation. Uh, we set up a, a second meeting where we get a little bit more in depth. And I am not a counselor or a therapist, but I am a coach. I am a mentor. And, um, and I do listen really well, and I act as a gateway to all of the services that are available through community services in my region, as well as the services that are available provincially and, and federally as well. When an individual um, is ready or something comes up where, you know, you maybe you should speak to a counselor about that, is that something you'd be interested in? Then I work with, I, I find out, I get the counselor. They have a meeting and then confidentiality rules kick in. And I, I don't want to know it's between mm-hmm. the counselor and the individual. But for the most part, um, I'm able to assist men with things like anger management. I'm able to assist them with uh, ideas that will help move them forward if they're stuck in a rut, um, either personally or, or, or uh, in their business. Uh, I'm able to see 
um, through our conversations whether or not they need a counselor or therapist. And I'm able to open up the doors for that. And, um, and I do it without charge and um, because it's all covered by my program. And I do it uh, to basically help the entire community become more stable. During times of disaster, um, and the Violence Association, which is a, um, uh, the EVA, it's called, here in British Columbia, and it deals with um, ending domestic violence. It has to do with domestic violence and, and helping women um, and through the provincial government, helping fund educational resources, programs, and in addition to that, helping women get out of these bad situations so they don't die. They came up with some statistics, and during times of incredible um, disaster, kind of like what we're going through with COVID, COVID's as much a disaster as if we had an earthquake, um, domestic violence goes up 300%. In Indigenous communities, violence against women goes up, for Indigenous women, 600%. Now, that isn't dividing up Indigenous individuals, Indigenous men saying they're bad. What I'm saying is Indigenous women experience domestic violence in one shape or another. It might be physical, could be mental, could be financial, could be sexual, right? The, the list goes on. 600%, 300% for the average. And we're actually seeing that in my region. We're actually seeing domestic violence is on the rise. That being the case, that shows us that toxic masculinity is alive and well because domestic violence is the effect of the cause. The cause is, is that these men are acting out. These men are, are, are unlearned individuals. They don't know another way to act. Or they have fallen into an addiction and it is silencing or, or squelching their ability to control their impulses. And so as a result, they're acting out. Those are the men that I'm, that I'm seeing. Those are the men. I'm also seeing a percentage of um, younger individuals as well that are dealing with the repercussions of having a violent father. So I'm dealing with that as well. And I'm also dealing with, out of all the men that I've seen, and I'll, I'll share this number with you, uh, since my program started two years ago, I have seen 41 men from my region. And in that, out of that 41, I would say the majority of them are between 40 and 60. The youth in the area, um, I see very few of them, but the ones that I do see are dealing with the trauma brought about by having a dysfunctional, toxic masculine family dynamic in one way or another. I don't know how else, I don't know. I, it's, it's, I can quote the statistics, but it, it's when you've got a, somebody in front of you and mm -hmm. they've had an epiphany that, uh, you know, they, uh, their, their father used to hit them and uh, they thought it was okay. And then they mm -hmm. realize it's not okay. And their own family won't talk to them anymore because they turned into this monster that they never thought in a million years they would ever become. And the pain, the internal trauma 
that they're now that's basically forced upon them. That is a good thing. I tell them straight out, that is a good thing. What you're going through right now, you've got to you got to breathe that in and you've got to know that together we can get better through this. We can work through these issues and you can be a more healthy individual. All you have to do is just the eye altering alters all. See things from a different mm-hmm. perspective and learn a new technique. Learn learn how to yeah. control your anger. Stuff like that. Well, Again, as, as what you referred to this book, it talks about domestic violence. It talks about how when in times of crisis or when there's mass unemployment, men feel emasculated, they lash out in violence. Um, it talks about being the son of people that do those things. Um, I think you're going to love this book. I think it's going to, it, it, it has provided me with so much information about, you know, just men and specifically men in the ages of 40 to 60. It talks a lot about that and that generation and how that, that generation is suffering the most from depression, suicide, um, in a lot of ways. Uh, so I I didn't bring that up because I didn't know if we had time, but I think it's important that I mention as well that, uh, we are looking at, uh, we're looking at an epidemic right now of men between the ages of 40 and 60 that are committing suicide because, uh, for the most part, what's happened is it's the traditional roles that they were raised on that all they know uh, has been whipped out from underneath them. And because there's nothing to replace it, it leaves a void. And that void, they fall into it, into depression, into pain. They're facing their trauma without help because to seek help is also toxic masculine belief system. And, uh, you know, the old, the old saying, you know, uh, the man not asking, not stopping and asking for directions, that, that lovely little joke. Well, that's, that's toxic. That's a, that's an example of toxic masculinity, a man who won't stop and ask for directions because men don't need to ask for help. That's wrong. Men need Mm -hmm. to start, they need to start asking for help. And, um, especially when they feel suicidal, the problem of course is, is that these men don't, and they're destroying their families, their children's lives just by deciding to exit and throw in their hand when they don't need to. Cameron, I'll tell you this. The opening chapter in this book is like literally the opening line is about men not asking for directions. It's the average male will drive an unnecessary 900 miles over the course of his life because they're they're unwilling to ask for directions like the like literally the the generalizations that we make and and you talked about in this book like this book is is that's literally the opening story the opening line opening idea of masculinity so um i appreciate you coming on sharing your story with me today um i know it's not easy and doing it in such a public setting but you know sharing your story about male victimhood um i would love for you to kind of go over or just give a, a minute minute and a half blurb about what you do how people can support you where people can find you um to hear more about your story and your mission so uh i i am one of the rare few men in uh, the world who helps other men to overcome the past trauma and collaborate communicate and heal those wounds People can find me at uh, our website, which is ASLCS.com. That stands for Arrow and Slocan Lakes Community Services.com, but it's ALSCS. No, A, <laughs> Arrow and Slocan Lakes. 
A-S-L-C-S. I had to think that through. I never say it. Uh, go there, check out the uh, <laughs> If you type in ASLCS.com forward slash form hyphen men, go there. You'll find the men's outreach and all the different services that are available to us. The expanded, uh, the new expanded men's outreach uh, that, that we've just started in September uh, is called Turn the Page. PAGE stands for Promoting Awareness and Global Education, global being all people, no matter who you are, need to learn about toxic masculinity and turn the page to the, to the best world we could have as opposed to where we've come from. And uh, that's it. That's it for me. And watch for my podcasts and the things that I'm going to be doing because it's, it's going to start to grow and I'm quite excited about it beautiful and i've uh i found your website turn the page um so i'm looking at it right now i'll make sure to include it in the bio uh, of this podcast people can click it easily and find it um i just think what you do is beautiful (laughs) and our programs are such that um although there are four people in the region uh if people outside the region want to participate by all means i don't want i don't want to turn anybody down and because of the incredible techniques of COVID and technology now, a lot of the things that we're going to be doing are going to be online, which means they're going to be open to anyone and everyone, but primarily people from within my region. But I'm open to talking to and learning from people from all over the world. Well, fantastic. I love your story. love you, what you're doing. And it was great to have this conversation. Um, and I think that that, that you, unique perspective that you offer uh, between generational gap and your experiences and what you're trying to do now and, and through your growth is a really unique conversation that I've yet to have on this podcast. So thank you very much for your imperfections, Cameron, and for sharing those with the imperfect pod. Um, it's it's going to make a, a beautiful podcast, I believe. And, and thank you so much for, for, for coming and speaking with me. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. Have a fantastic day and a great weekend. Thank you everyone so much for listening to this week's episode with Cameron. I really hope you got a lot out of it. I'm going to include the links to his um, website in the description below. So make sure to check that out. And uh, yeah, that's kind of it. I hope you look forward to next week's episode. And as always, email me at luke at theimperfectpod.com or follow me on Instagram at theimperfectpod to reach out, you know, and continue the conversation.